our Savior speaking. And he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lie down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard of my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you these things I command you that you love one another. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that a tremendous price has been paid for us to be able to have a relationship with you. And Lord, the relationship means everything to us as your children. And Lord, we want to know about and to experience personally every single aspect of the relationship that has been purchased for us in the blood of Christ. And so we pray that this morning, by your Holy Spirit, you would use our time in your word to lead us into an even deeper and more intimate place in our relationship with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the city of Jerusalem on the night before his crucifixion in a section of scripture that has become known as the upper room discourse. And as Jesus sits in that upper room in the city of Jerusalem and just kind of quietly speaking to the disciples on the night before the cross, our passage records that Jesus said something to them that as you read it for the first time in going through the Bible, it's absolutely, to me, jaw-dropping. And here in these verses, Jesus informs the disciples and us that he considers us to be his friends. And then knowing the single great question that would enter into our minds once we come to find out that he desires to be our friend and for us to be his friend, the great question that enters our mind then is how in the world can we be the very best friend that we can be to Christ? And Jesus answers that question in these verses. Notice, first of all, in verses 15 and 16, that Jesus declares himself to be our friend. In verse 15, the Greek word for friend means friend. It means beloved. It means companion. In the ancient world, the word was often used for the best man of the groom at a wedding. In other words, it was a word that was reserved for a person's very best friend. And you just stop and you say, wow, that is how Jesus sees us. As his disciples, I wouldn't presume to believe it 
to believe that that would be his attitude toward me, to believe that I could know him with that kind of intimacy if I did not have it in the written word right before my eyes. Jesus is my friend. I mean, that's something you take a walk with to let it sink in. Now, in the Old Testament book of Psalms, very often when the psalmist would be writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he would put, as a, when he would finish a stanza, he would write the word Selah. And the word Selah means to pause, to meditate. It was almost as if the psalmist and the Holy Spirit himself recognized Our tendency, even as God's people, to just absolutely fly by some of the most amazing revelations of God in the Word and hardly give them half a second and move on to the next thing, things that He wants to slow us down and to think about because He knows the awe that it will produce within our lives. And this is one of those kind of moments if there was the Selah used in the New Testament. Think about that for a moment. That Jesus is our friend and desires to be our friend. I think one of the reasons that we it's important for some of us to slow down and let that sink in is that some of us might be hesitant to accept that kind of intimacy with God. We're comfortable with him as Lord. That's wonderful. We're comfortable with him as Savior. We're comfortable with him as Almighty. Comfortable with him as the Omnipotent. Comfortable with him as the Omniscient. Comfortable with him as the Omnipresent God. That he is all-powerful. That he is all-knowing. That he is all-present. And that produces an awe within our hearts. It makes us feel very small in an outstanding way in our hearts. And all that is good. All of that is needed. We don't have to pick and choose here. But God knows that in this very fallen world that we live in as Christians, that we're going to need to know him sooner or later, and sooner rather than later, we're going to need to know him as a friend. And so that's a part of the relationship that he opens up to us. Notice how Jesus differentiates between a servant and a friend in verse 15, between a servant relationship with God and a friendship relationship with with Jesus. Now, in those days, it wasn't uncommon for people to have servants that they owned. We called them slaves. In the New King James, very often the, what was called a slave in the Old King James is translated a servant, I assume in order to kind of soften it. But in Jesus's day, at that time when Rome ruled the world, There were well over six million slaves in the Roman Empire. People had slaves and not just rich people, people that were kind of upper middle class would have slaves, too. And not all slaves washed the dishes or washed people's feet when they came into the room. They didn't all take low positions. If you were a wealthy person. You would try to identify a student in one of the schools, perhaps, that had an aptitude for medicine. 
And then you would pay for that student's education to become a medical doctor. And then that medical doctor, once he graduated from school, he would become the family doctor. So, but he would be a slave every bit as much as the person that washed somebody's feet. And so we, do, we can't just think of them as in, you know, being uniformly one kind of person or holding one kind of position. Many high positions were held by slaves who were educated to hold those positions and be successful in them by their owners. And so it wasn't uncommon to have slaves and servants in those days that people owned. And perhaps the closest relationship that we have it today in our culture, and it's a, there's a tremendous gap between the Old Testament on this and, and between our culture, but the closest thing that we have to it would be what we would call an employee. Jesus said a servant does not know what his master is doing. That is, a master doesn't reveal a lot to his servants beyond what he wants them to do for him. It's very much a work-related relationship. So a master typically would not take a servant into his confidence, share his, you know, greatest thoughts or his deepest emotions of his heart or all of his dreams and desires in life or all of his hopes for the future. No master would really share that with a slave in those days. But Jesus calls us his friends because, he said, all things that he heard from the Father he has made known to us. In other words, one of the characteristics of a friend is that you do share your mind with them. Your greatest thoughts, your deepest thoughts. You do share the deepest emotions of your heart. You do share your dreams and your aspirations and your hopes for the future. That's what a friend does with a friend. And Jesus had already done that with the disciples and as a result with us. They knew of his coming crucifixion. They knew how he felt about it. They knew about how it weighed upon his mind and how it weighed upon his heart as it was approaching. They knew why he was going to be crucified. They knew about his coming resurrection. They knew about his ascension into heaven. They knew about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. They knew about what their place was going to be in the expansion of God's kingdom in the world following Jesus' ascension into heaven. And they knew all of these things and so much more that Jesus had spoken to them over the course of the three and a half years of public ministry. We're still servants as Christians, and wonderfully so. I'll never consider myself to ever be, not be a servant to the Lord and love to be his servant. But we must never view ourselves as Christians as merely a servant. Jesus says we're also friends because we possess an intimacy with the heart and with the mind and with the purposes and with the desires of God. That only a friend does. Now notice in verse 16 that Jesus has chosen us as his friends. Now that's just crazy gracious of him. 
to choose us as his friends. I feel so bad for him about that. This is what he gets out of the deal. I'm sorry, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about myself. If you were God and you knew everything about you, all of your strengths and all of your weaknesses and your flaws and your thoughts and your selfishness, and you complete the list, would you choose you as a friend? All those needs that you and I would bring to a friendship, unbelievable. No, probably wouldn't do it. We operate under the motto, a friend that ain't in need is a friend indeed. <laughs> Thankfully, God doesn't, doesn't do that. Someone may sit here and say, well, I understand why he chose me. I think I'd bring quite a bit to God. I think I'd enrich him uh, rather mightily. In fact, I think that the relationship that I would have with God might end up being heavily weighted toward my side, where I'd be doing most of the giving and him most of the receiving. Well, you should be the most thankful of all that he's chosen you to be his friend. God's choice of us for relationship and for service should always remain one of the greatest mysteries in our life. We just say, I cannot figure that out. I have a good friend named Gail Irwin, and I love his quote in this vein. He said, his choice of me is the only thing that makes me wonder about him. <laughs> and isn't that the truth? <laughs> the only, only thing that makes me doubt is wisdom. Now, in the ancient world, the disciple would be the one who would choose the rabbi or the teacher that he would attach himself to. Wasn't the rabbi teach? choosing the disciples. The disciples would choose the rabbi that they would then commit their life then to following their, their teaching and, and learning from them. But Jesus chose them and chose us. And that knowledge that Jesus gives to them of the fact that I have, you haven't chosen me, I have chosen you, that knowledge for them and for us is intended to produce a Tremendous confidence in us in what is a world that looks like it's uh, fairly out of control most of, of the time. In other words, God chose me and he doesn't make mistakes. That doesn't say anything about my value or my self-worth. It says an awful lot about his grace. But at the same time, when he chooses us, then the, here's the God, the old, him, he's got the itty-bitty baby in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He measures the entire creation and universe with a span of his hand. And that's the God who has chosen us. And these disciples were facing a lot of difficulty in their immediate future. And, and Jesus wanted to, them to have that confidence that, yes, he was calling them to great difficulty. He was calling them to do great things in his name, but that they would be successful, not because they had promoted themselves to that position, but because he had chosen them. And what is true of them is 
true of us. God knew what he was getting when he called us and chose us a project. (laughs) And he chose us anyway. Now, notice in verse 16 what he promises to us, what will come out of this friendship relationship. Jesus said fruit will fruit that will remain talking about great spiritual fruit and influence for the kingdom of God. He talked about as an effect of this friendship relationship that it would lead to a supernaturally effective prayer life. These are things that we've talked about in past weeks. Well, Jesus has spoken to us about his side of this friendship relationship, but a relationship is a two-way thing. And so Jesus then, in this passage, gives us instruction on how we can be a friend to Him. How best to express our friendship to Him. And He tells us in verse 14, the first way is just by simply obeying His commandments. Single greatest way to express my friendship to Christ is to obey his commandments. Now, I don't have Jesus to wake up to in the morning in a physical form like the disciples had for three and a half years. They could say anything that they wanted to him face to face. They had an access to him that was unique in human history at that time. And so I think to myself, how do I express my thanksgiving to him for the relationship and for the friendship that I have with him. And so how do we do it? How do we express how much we value our friendship with him? As we just simply obey his commandments, we are expressing to him our loyalty to this friendship and we are expressing our appreciation for the friendship. And I think that's a wonderful way to look at obedience to his commandments. It isn't just words on a page in a book, but I am expressing my loyalty and my appreciation for the friendship that he has initiated with me. Now, in any friendship in life, there are going to be tests of our loyalty, temptations to do things that we know would damage the relationship, temptation to neglect the relationship, to begin to take it for granted. What is true of a human relationship is also true of our relationship with Christ. And it's obedience to His commandments, to the things that He's told us that are important to Him, one of the ways that we can show ourselves to be a good and a loyal friend to Him, that we value this friendship. We do it through obedience. And that's good to know because I want Jesus to have an innumerable such friends all over this world to bless his heart. And then I certainly want to be that kind of a friend to him. So God just comes and he tells me and he tells you, Jesus says, just obey my commandments. That's part of being a good friend. We like being a good friend. Another way that we can Uh, practically express our friendship toward Jesus is by loving one another as Christians. And that commandment is given once in verse 
12, and again in verse 17. It's kind of like the black on an Oreo cookie. It just sandwiches the entire thing that he's saying here. Verse 12, he said, love one another. Verse 17, he said, love one another. And we really do need to love one another as Christians in this fallen world. And I think we need to love one another certainly more than we realize. We don't realize how much we need one another. You're going to say, why in the world, all the way through the Bible, is God always telling us to love one another? He must know something. Not just about our tendency not to do it, but because of the need that we have to be a part of a family and and the body of Christ where there's this genuine love and concern for one another. And Christ knows, God knows, that we need it very often more than we even realize. There was a block of my childhood, a number of years, that included living in a a lot of foster homes, one right after the other. And I don't blame them for wanting to get rid of my brother and I time and again. Uh, I I have a twin brother. And so we'd go into these homes one right after another, right after another. Some of them were absolutely fabulous. I mean, we would almost cry when we had to leave. And then others of them were terrible. I hope those people get saved. You know, and there were more than, you know, one, they're in for, for the money. And you find out later that that's what was going on on things. But as a kid, you're not processing like that. And one of the things that my mother never allowed to happen through all of her struggles is she never allowed us to be divided as twins. And, and so we always moved from these one home to the other. And, and, and we were always together. And as long as I was with my twin brother, it was OK because we knew that we loved each other. It's just the power of love, that kind of a relationship it can get you through unbelievable things, even in a kid's uh, life. And so Jesus would say to us, do you really want to show your friendship toward me? Well, you're not going to be able to do it face to face the way, you know, 2000 years ago, that kind of way. But you can do it by loving my people, loving my children. And then he gives us the example in that. He said in verse 12, as I have loved you, he's the example in that. Will you tell me to love one another, to love my fellow Christian? There are so many definitions of love. How many songs have been written about love? How many books written about love? You just tell me to love somebody? I can't get my mind around that word. And most of the definitions of how to love another person in this world are just squirrely. They do more damage than they do good. And Jesus knew we'd be in that difficult place. And so essentially he's saying here, you want to know what love looks like toward One another, he said, just treat other people the same way that I treat you. You think about how patient, how gracious, how faithful Jesus was to those disciples 2,000 years ago. Through all their immaturity, through all of their uh, imperfections and considerable growth pains, wanting to call fire down on people. They really did that. 
It's one thing to read it in the Bible, and it's another thing to put you in their place. James and John wanted to smoke an entire city to drive home a point. Willing to do it. Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. Constantly saying the wrong thing at the very worst time. If you had 12 disciples like these 12, so prone, not only to continually say the wrong thing in public, but to say it at the very worst time. If you had kids like this, you'd take them out into public and you'd say, all right, we're going out to dinner or we're going over to so-and-so's house. We're going to go do such and such at a museum or whatever. And you could just know at the world's worst time, they will some one of them will say the world's worst thing. After a while, you wouldn't take them out in public. But Jesus kept taking these people out into public. Associating them with him. I think about Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured into his eternal glory. Moses is there. Elijah is there. Peter sees it. And he doesn't know what to say. Never stop Peter. So he says to Jesus, it's good for us to be here. You've been reading self-esteem books, Peter? What do you mean? It's good for you to be here. Jesus, it's good for us to be here. And then he said, let us build a tabernacle, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he's putting Moses, Jesus, on the same level of Moses and Elijah. Well, this was even more than God the Father could take. And from his... Heaven, he interrupts Peter, maybe even mid-sentence, and says, This is my beloved son, hear ye him. And, all, and the, three, the three disciples, it said, they fell down and they were terrified at God the Father's voice. Peter, you always do this to us, can't take you anywhere. But you make a mess of things. Always fighting over which of them was the greatest. Peter's going to deny him three times. Of course, of a night, they're all going to scatter and abandon him on the most needy moment of his public ministry, the moment, the morning of the day Jesus is going to be crucified and is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet Jesus never gave up on them. And he never gives up on us. He still takes us out in public, still introduces us as his sons and as his daughters. And because he never gives up on us, we should never give up on anyone else. I'm so thankful, and I'm not the old wise owl, I'm, I'm just getting older. But I think back on 25 years of being a pastor and it's not that it's all in my rearview mirror because I know it goes on today and it will go on till the Lord returns but I'm so thankful for those saints who have been so patient with me 
through the years as a pastor who have stuck with me when they would, without a doubt, be whispering to themselves at certain times, saying, someday he won't say that from the pulpit. Someday he'll do that differently. And then, lo and behold, the someday comes. And it does get handled differently. And things get said differently. And I think that one of the things that's nice about that kind of love is it is contagious and it does kind of end up rubbing off within the body of Christ. And I think back on the early days of being a pastor and how many things that you would see in somebody's life and, you know, it would be some kind of a big deal. And then now, after walking with him for a while and growing somewhat in Christlikeness, you just look at him and you think to yourself, someday he'll say that a little differently than he just did. Someday she'll do handle that and do that a little differently than she just did. And this is how we learn. We learn from how Christ has loved us. Someone has said a friend is one to whom one may pour out all the contents of one's heart, chaff and grain together, knowing that the gentlest of hands will take and sift it, keep what is worth keeping, and with a breath of kindness blow the rest away. That is our continual experience with Jesus. Oswald Chambers, he knew it to be so. He said this, the dearest friend on earth is a mere shadow compared to Jesus Christ. That is true. In verse 13, Jesus gives us the degree to which we are to love one another. He said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. The degree to which we're to love one another is to the point of death. That's the link that Jesus went to, to express his love toward us as his friends. It's humbling to think about that. Produces worship in us, all within us, to realize that he went to the cross in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins, in order to make a way for us to have this kind of friendship with him. Now, in our culture, in this part of the world that we live in, it's not true of every part of the world, but it's, it's true at this point in time in our history in the United States. Probably very few of us will be called upon to lay our lives down in an instant as an expression of love for the, someone else in the body of Christ. Most likely, we will spend our lives dying on a day-by-day -day basis, on a situation-by-situation -situation basis, conversation-by-conversation -conversation basis with members of the body of Christ as we just lay down our lives for the good of the health of the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the personal sacrifice required of him to remain faithful to God's calling upon his life for the good of the body of Christ. He wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, 
I die daily. Elsewhere, he wrote to the Galatians and he said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That day by day, laying a life down where death doesn't occur in the moment. But it's a death that occurs over a lifetime in order to express the love of Christ for the body of Christ through us. And why did Paul do it? He gives us the reason for it in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, where he said, It is the love of Christ that constrains us. So why do I live the life that I live, Paul said? The love of Christ the love that he has shown me personally and shown this world has laid such a hold on our lives that we can't help but love the way that he does. And if you want an example of continuing to love Christians in the face of almost unbelievable ingratitude for his work and sacrifice in the face of disrespect that was nothing short of appalling and almost unforgivable neglect, just read of Paul's life in the Scriptures. And the world might look at much of Paul's life and his ministry and wonder what could make such a life bearable? What could make it bearable, much less desirable. And what makes it worth it? The relationship with Christ that's found in that place of dying on a daily basis, on a decision-by-decision basis, for the good of the body of Christ, for the good of His bride. There is a communion that occurs there. There's a depth of friendship and relationship and understanding that occurs between a human being and Christ that occurs in no other place. Why did Paul do it? Why do we do it? What is the great reward? That kind of relationship with Christ. And praise the Lord for that kind of relationship with Christ. So again, this passage, to me, it's just mind-boggling how priceless this is. Here Jesus informs us as Christians that He considers us to be His friends. And then He reveals to us the ways in which we might express our friendship and our loyalty to Him. How we can be a good friend to Him. And maybe you didn't know that Jesus views you as a friend. Now you know. And if that's happened, then something absolutely priceless has happened in the room this morning. Maybe you never realized how best to express your friendship toward Him. And now you do. That's a good thing. Jesus is my friend, and I am Jesus' friend. That is incredible. It is an indescribably wonderful truth 
and reality is worth taking a walk with any old time. Charles Kingsley was a great Christian author from England. Uh, he wrote a book called The Water Babies. He wrote a book called uh, Alton Locke, which is kind of um, Dickens-esque and uh, very, very good writer in his day. And Charles Kingsley greatly influenced one of the greatest Bible teachers of the last century, a man by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. He was such an influence on Campbell Morgan that Campbell Morgan named one of his sons after Charles Kingsley. Well, Mr. Kingsley had a tremendous friend and a theologian by the name of F.D. Maurice. And late in life, when Kingsley was asked the secret of his life, he said simply, I had a friend, referring to Mr. Maurice. And I think it's beautiful. It always reminds me of this, the power and the influence of friendship. And I think of how much more when that friend is Jesus. Yes, let's know him as our Savior. Let's know him as our Lord. But let's also be careful to also know him at his invitation as our friend as Christians. That is the fullness of the relationship that has been purchased for us. Some people, because of personality, some because of a theological background that they come from where God is way out there and you are way over here. This is a wonderful revelation. God not only, Jesus not only allows us to have a close, intimate, secret, sharing, personal friendship, but he desires it with each and every, each and every one of us in our lives. It's an amazing, amazing truth. If you sit here today and you have never, ever trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, never asked him to become your savior, never said, God, I admit that I am a sinner, that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. And that I believe those things to be true. I've been less than perfect in my life. And that imperfection has separated me from the relationship I've been created for. But you would then go on to say, I believe, though, that the Bible is true, that you love me so much that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins, to be buried and rise again on the third day to provide me and mankind with a salvation that pleases you and pleases heaven. And then if you would be willing to repent of your own direction in life and to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will come into your life this morning. And then you will know God as your Savior and as your Lord and begin a friendship with Him as well. Or say, oh no, God wouldn't want a friendship 
with me. God wants a friendship with you. Trust me, if he wanted a friendship with 90% of the people in this room that already know the Lord, you're not on the outs. He loves you and he wants to have that friendship with you this morning. And why is it possible? Verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. He's the one that has made through the cross that friendship possible. Let's pray and give him thanks this morning.